What lovely and assuring words those are that we just sang. That our Savior has made an end of all of our sin. And that He is right now pleading before the throne on our behalf. We're going to need those assurances as we consider the Word of God as presented to us this morning in Mark chapter 9. This morning as we gather, it is our custom as um, pastors and, and worship leaders to pray before the service and ask the Lord to bless the time that we would share together in, in worship. I asked the brothers this morning to, to pray a, a special prayer in the giving of God's Word because the Word that the Lord has for us today is a hard word. It's not an, not an easy word that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us today. It, it's a reminder of why it is we um, traditionally here at Cornerstone preach through books of the Bible. And I don't get the chance just every week to choose what text I want to preach from and say, yes, I feel like saying those words today. I think I'll preach that text. It's it's, there's a wisdom to preaching through books of the Bible because when we do that, God sets the agenda for what is said. He is the one who is speaking to us. And this morning would be a text. For those of you who are new with us this morning, I assure you, I don't stand up every week and choose the hardest text imaginable to read and preach for God's people. I preach the next text that the Lord brings us to in the book that we're currently in, and we're in one of those difficult texts this morning. One of the things that's, that's tempting in a text like this that we'll read is, is in fear to soft pedal something here or, or there, um, being concerned about how this may uh, be received or experienced by the variety of souls in this room right now. And there is a variety of souls, some of us who are deeply sensitive and can be rattled in an unhealthy way from a text that speaks with the kind of severity that this text does from Jesus. And then, of course, there are souls in this room that are hard and are resistant to the kind of conviction that Jesus would want us to have with regards to a text with the kind of severe warnings that this passage brings. And so there can be a tendency to as it were, ramp up one aspect of the text or play down one aspect of the text in fear that it would register wrongly in the hearts and the lives of you, God's people, and even in the hearts and the life of my own as I listen to this sermon preached along with you this morning. I want to pray even before we read this text because only the Spirit can interpret His Word. See, only the Spirit can ultimately know what every soul in this room needs to glean from God's Word this morning. And it's no happen chance. There's, there's, no, uh, there's no randomness to the fact that we're here and, and you're here on this particular Sunday. So if you have already, as some of you seem like you may be doing, reading ahead in this text and saying, why is he so worried about this text? I, I better read ahead and make sure you know, I'm going to be okay you know, in this service. You, the Lord is with us. Our risen and ascended Lord is interceding for us. Take comfort um, at His throne of grace. But also to recognize that it's, it's, this was 
This was not your morning to sleep in. Praise be to God. This is the text that he has chosen for us to consider this morning. And so as we approach it together, let's do so with humility. Let's do so prayerfully and asking the Lord to meet us in the way that only he can. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, right now, we simply ask for your spirit to have his way in our hearts. We ask that he alone would be the preacher of this text. And in many ways, the preacher who, who stands uh, before your people right now would get out of the way of the work that the Spirit uh, would want to do. Uh, or said differently, that he would be a mighty instrument used in your hand, um, apart from his own sinful failings. Uh, Lord, that you would superintend and you would overwhelm us with a sense of the truthfulness and the graciousness of who you are as you call us today from sin into repentance. Uh, Lord, would you lead us there now as we consider this, uh, your text from Mark chapter 9. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 9, beginning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these uh, little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life Lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. There's a a writer who I have enjoyed over the years, his name is Charles Williams. Some of you will know him. He was one of the famed Inklings, um, the group of writers that would meet at the Eagle and the Child in Oxford, sometimes affectionately called the Bird and the Baby, uh, as they would go for a, a pint, often in the afternoon or the evenings, and would read selections of their uh, writings. It was there where the Chronicles of Narnia were first given audience there in that little pub in Oxford. And one of their occasional and very influential members over the course of their gatherings as the Englands was a man by the name of Charles Williams, who C.S. Lewis uh, took a particular fancy to. Uh, Williams um, would, in his writing, uh, both in his uh, theology writing and in his poems, but especially in some of his uh, novels, which are uh, fantastic in, in many ways. I don't mean that simply that they're very good, but that they are fantasies. Um, they are imaginary uh, novels and, and narratives. 
um, he often plays on the theme of what's called what he called coherence. Co- coherence. He understood the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to, as the theologians like to put it, to co-inhere with one another. That is that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and the Spirit is in the Father and the Son, that they are in mutual relationship with one another in such a way that they actually participate in the life of one another. That their life is not separate from one another, it's bound up and tied together. In fact, we being made in the image of God reflect that in the creation story when God made Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, and he refers to their marriage as one which takes two people, and those two people in marriage become one flesh. That is, they co-inhere with one another, and not surprisingly, in their coherence and their connectedness, their life together, what's born? Well, fruitfulness comes from their relationship in the same way that the relationship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the fruitfulness of their relationship, creation flowed forth. Now, Williams believed in this concept in a very deep way. He actually believed all of our lives, especially those of us in the body of Christ, co-inhered together. That we are, as God's people, either helping one another along on our way to heaven, growing in grace, being sanctified, slowly but surely, more into the likeness of Christ. We're either helping one another in that way, or we are hindering one another. And some of the characters in Charles Williams' novels, will um, he'll glimpse, almost in a very imaginative way, uh, these people who are relating to one another, going up and down the ladder on their journey through life, either through the thoughts that they give themselves to, or the words they say, or the actions that they take, or the things that happen to us. They're either advancing or they're falling back at every moment. What would it be like to consider every moment of our lives either a step towards heaven or a step in the opposite direction towards hell? Williams believes something of that is actually happening day in and day out in our life. And when we look at the scriptures, we have reason to believe that he was on to something. Jesus, in many ways, actually paints that kind of picture for us here. That every single day, eternity, in one way, shape, or form, is hanging in the balance for each of us. And that there is an invisible, often behind the physical realities, a spiritual reality that is taking place. And we are sometimes akin to it, but are very often blind to it. Jesus, in this passage with his disciples, are seeking to raise their awareness of the spiritual realities that are at play. And through the disciples, um, he's teaching us together today what it means to be radically committed as disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to start by looking at this particular point from Mark uh, chapter 9. It's a, really a carryover in some ways from uh, the previous section in Mark chapter 9, it's a, it's a simple but a, but a very key and important point that's captured right, right there in verse 42 of Mark chapter 9. It's this point. Disciples, that's you and me, disciples do not cause other disciples to sin. That's Jesus' charge to us together today. 
It's his charge to his disciples as he teaches them in Capernaum. Disciples, you, don't cause other disciples, other followers of me, to sin. Now, where am I getting that? Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones. Now, if you'll remember earlier in Luke chapter 9, if you were with us uh, last week or even over the last couple of weeks, Jesus has used children as a reference point for his people, those in the lowest estate. Um, in the previous section, we actually saw the disciples display an elitist attitude, didn't we? They were arguing about who was greatest, and John even had the gall to stop someone who was casting out demons in Jesus' name and say, hey, quit doing that. You're not following with one of us. He was, in a sense, hindering one of these little ones, one of these weak, young disciples of Jesus Christ. He was standing in their way. That They were expressing a kind of elitist attitude. They were falling into sin and their sin was having an effect negatively on the people around them. They were actually causing their brother, in this sense, to stumble. And we see Jesus here picking up that thread with his disciples. It's just them in this house at Capernaum. And he's teaching them privately in these seminar training sessions of Jesus with these twelve. And he wants them to know it would be better... For someone to have a great millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea than to cause another one of Jesus' disciples to sin. What a vivid and disturbing image. But an image that would not have been lost on the disciples. Historians of the time, Roman historians, uh, observed that killing by drowning was one of the means that was used by the Roman government at the time with regards to execution. According to some reports, this exact form of execution was reserved very regularly for those who were insurrectionists, those who were Benedict Arnold, so to speak, who were thumbing their nose in one way, shape, or form uh, to the Roman government and uh, were those who had about-faced and turned towards another power and authority. By using this imagery, Jesus is painting a picture in the clearest uh, way imaginable. He's saying to his disciples, if you lead another Christian disciple into sin by your behavior, by your words, by your actions, it is no, nothing short than a denial of my very mission. You are, in a sense, a kind of spiritual insurrectionist. Working against the very ends of which I have sent you as my disciples. Think about it. In life laying down love, Jesus has come to the earth to fulfill one mission. What is that? To save and to sanctify for himself a people for his own possession. This is Jesus' mission. And we are experiencing and celebrating this morning the reality that he completed it. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. His mission is complete. It has been received by the Father, and he now exercises rule and reign. We are those who are his disciples. That means we are those who are followers of him. Which means that our mission in life, guess what? is His mission. Our mission in life is His mission. He's not asked us to create a mission, to think of how to give purpose or meaning to our life. 
He's not asking us to dream that up or to concoct some plan. He has given you a vision and a mission for life. It's his mission. What is his mission? To save and sanctify his people for his glory and namesake. That's our mission. That's what he's called us to do. If we in our relationships are actually dragging each other down, actually causing each other to sin, actually doing what John did in the previous passage, hindering those who are Jesus' little ones in the work of ministry, then we're not just the little off our game. We're, we're not just, we've not just swung and missed. We are working in opposition to Jesus' mission. It's the exact opposite reason he's come. He's come to save and to sanctify. If we're leading people into sin, we're doing the exact opposite of what it is that Jesus has called us to do. And some of you may be saying to yourself, but Nate, I'm not trying to disciple anyone. This text doesn't apply to me. Well, I have lots of thoughts about that statement. There's a lot of issues there. I'm not trying to disciple anyone. Well, we won't go down all of those paths. But, but I think it's worth saying that um, whether you know it or not, you are discipling someone. Every single one of us in this room has influence. Every single one of us in this room has someone who knows us and is watching us. Someone who is paying attention to us. Someone who actually cares what you think and what you do. Who may in some way, shape, or form even look up to you. I was reading a few weeks ago in preparation for a conference about technology. I was giving a seminar on the Christian's use of technology, and uh, one of the terms that, uh, that popped up in the study on technology was propinquity, propinquity, which means that which is closest to you often forms you the most, shapes your life the most. And I was making the argument that that which is closest to you is maybe that thing sitting in your pocket right now, that you carry around all day long, and it is maybe shaping your schedule and your patterns of behavior and maybe the neurowiring of your brain. And we should pay really close attention to the things we are close to all of the time. Well, guess what? I don't know if you've noticed this, but the people who are closest to you have the most formative impact on your life, whether you want them to or not. How many of us wake up at some point along our lives and we're in our 30s or our 40s and we say something, we look in the mirror and we go, I'm my father. I'm my mother. I can't believe it. Like I didn't, I wanted to be anyone but my father or my mother. That's how we sometimes think as we're growing up, right? We're going to be radically different. But somehow or another, by being in close relationship to them formatively for so many years, they have had a shaping influence on who it is that we've become. And don't you often find that the assets and the blessings that you gain from them show up in your life? But don't you also find out the sins of their life are passed on to you too? Now put this in context, Jesus is here speaking to his disciples. These are, let's consider who these men are. These are what Paul will later write in Ephesians chapter 2, the foundation stones of the church. That's who these men are. These 12 men have been charged to evangelize, to disciple, to raise up the first generation of leaders in the church. These men are going to have a profound impact upon the life of the church. Humanly speaking, we might say the future gospel witness and the advance of God's kingdom 
is on the shoulders of these 12 men. Jesus, in the strongest way imaginable, wants them to know in this moment that it's mission critical that they get over themselves. It's mission critical that they get over a ministry where their glory and their greatness is in view. That's where they've been. That's what they've been arguing about. That's what they've been jealous about with the success of others. It's mission critical that the glory and the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ is their sole focus in discipleship. That they see themselves not as owners of the mission, but as ambassadors of a king. They have come to those not with their own message. They have come not in their own power. They have come not with their own glory and greatness in view. They have come utterly captivated by the Savior and the Lord who has redeemed them. Now, if we're disciples, this is to be true of us. This is to be true of us. And Jesus wants us to know that eternity hangs in the balance, that we are influencing one another either on our way to heaven, assisting each other in growth and grace, or we are deterring and hindering one another on that path. He says it is better for a millstone to be hung around the neck and to be thrown into the sea than to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, maybe you're asking, as I've asked a lot this week, looking at this text, how can we do this? How can we avoid this outcome? And I want to look point two at this particular emphasis of the text. Here's point two. If point one was disciples, don't lead other disciples to sin. Here's point two. Disciples, put sin to death yourself. <laughs> put sin to death in yourself. Now, this, this seems really clear, doesn't it? The best way to keep from others following us down the wrong path is for us not to go down the wrong path. This is why Jesus emphasizes this in the rest of this text. Don't go down the path. Don't head down that path. How many of us want to see the patterns of generational sin broken in our families? It's one of, one of the most assuring and encouraging things when I'm sitting with a a premarital counseling couple or a couple who's had their first child and maybe something is dawning on them in a way that they had not seen before about the gravity of, of sin and darkness and the way that it affected them and the way it's been carried over generationally in their families as they see addictions and abuse and they see all kinds of, of ugly uh, realities playing in the background of their own hearts of which they've been formed by and they sit there and we talk through them and we consider the dynamics of it and we apply God's grace and I hear them say but for the grace of God this will stop now that's their heart this will stop now there's a resolve in their hearts that says I want to see sin dead in me I don't want to see it passed on in this way to my children. That's a beautiful thing to have that kind of resolve. That's a wonderful thing that Jesus is calling us to. Now, how do we get down that path? How does that actually work? It's one thing to say that in the office in a moment where it seems very clear. It's another thing to do that on Monday morning in your home. How do we actually fight sin? Well, no, notice how it actually begins in the text. Jesus says we must be resolved 
to cut sin out of our lives. This is where it starts. Now, look at the way that he puts it. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to go through life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. We must be resolved to cut out sin in our lives. We must be actionable in the exercise of it. Now, you might imagine, and, and maybe you're, you sitting there thinking about this text, that folks over the years, um, scholars alike, have stumbled over these words. They found them very difficult to understand. Sadly, some of them have taken uh, these words uh, literally. Now, I remember in the church history class in, in seminary, reading through, I think it was Gonzalez's work on church history. Don't quote me on that. I'm not totally sure, but I think it was where he focuses on Origen, and Origen, who battled sexual sin, decided that the best way for him to deal with this sexual sin was to follow Jesus' words in Mark chapter 9, and yes, he did what you think I'm going to say. That's what he did, and he thought that that would deal with his sin. Is that what Jesus has in mind? Well, absolutely not. Jesus is, of course, speaking metaphorically here, just as he does in other places in the gospel, like when he speaks of the Lord's table as consuming his own flesh and of his own blood. He's speaking in a kind of metonymy, we might say, using a certain part of the body to express a certain range of sinfulness. We might say that he chose something from the head, he chose something from the middle part, the hands, and he chose something from the foot in order to give us the clear picture that sin is from head to toe needing to be put to death, okay? Pervasively, we struggle with sin and the whole of sin and the body of sin must be fought and put to death in our lives. We know that this must be the case because, uh, well, sin ultimately is not just embedded in our hands or in our feet or in our eyes, uh, for instance, we do good things with, with hands and feet uh, and, and eyes. Uh, you, you remember that uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, says, Whatever my hands find to do, do with all thy might. Honest work, uh, charity can be displayed with hands. Hands aren't really the issue. That's not the problem. Uh, feet. Um, are often lauded as, as important aspects of gospel mission. Isaiah writes, beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, going to a foreign country on a mission endeavor, your feet help you uh, tremendously uh, to get there. Jesus is not talking negatively about feet, that you need to go cut off your feet. Or think of si Simeon as he sees baby Jesus coming to the temple for the very first time in Luke 2. We always read this at Christmas time as he holds the baby in his arms and he says, my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. Now, if we're ever really going to put these sins to death, these sins that are often connected to our bodies, we're going to have to get underneath the reality of these bodily parts to the very center and the source of sin which is the heart. Which is the heart. You remember when Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 confronted the Pharisees 
uh, and the religious leaders on how they would try to keep man's commandments and traditions in order to obey all that God had called them to. And Jesus says, you know what you are? You're like whitewashed tombs. You try to fix up everything on the outside and yet you're dead at center. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. You know what? Each of those required eyes, hands, and feet. All of those sins that he mentioned a second ago. And some of them included other parts of our body. All of that included a physical body, but he didn't say the physical body's the problem, did he? All of this came from the heart. That is what defiles a person. If we're going to truly cut out sin, we've got to certainly stop doing sinful actions, but we've got to get to the source of our sinfulness. We've got to get to the heart. We've got to ask the question, why are we doing these things? Sometimes I think in our Christian lives, we, we think sin is, or killing sin is, it, it entails acknowledging that we've done something wrong and trying not to do it again and praying that we might not. And that's it. How, how successful are you in that? Me neither. It's not really addressing the issue. It's not really getting to the heart. It's, we're addressing the, the fruit of our sin. We're not addressing the root of our sin. You know, if you pluck a fruit or cut it off or, or do something that will remove it for a time, but you don't actually deal with the source of the issue, what's going to happen? It's going to come back. Jesus is calling us here to a kind of holy violence towards our sin. He is calling us, as the old word would put it, to mortify our sin. To go all the way to its source. To kill it, to put it to death, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 8. Now, we'll talk more about how to do that here in just a second. But I want you to note something right here, because I think this is really important. It's obvious from Jesus' instruction that this Struggle with sin is going to require of us relentless effort. Relentless effort. If you find fighting sin hard, extremely difficult, and, and sometimes like whack-a-mole, you, you, you hit one and another one seems to pop up, like right beside it, and the sin of your hearts will in some way show up in this way and then, and then that way. And, and just as you're dealing with something, something else seems to pop up. If you, if you experience that, I want you to know you're normal. You're normal. That's, that's, that is the way we experience it. it. That is the struggle and the reality of sin. That is to be expected. He says here, this is going to take relentless effort. We've got to have to resolve ourselves to cut out sin and get to its source. It's got to be a daily reality for the Christian's life. Now, when I say it's going to be hard, here's part of the issue, is we often don't see much success in it. And it may be because we're not using the means of grace that the Lord has given to us. We may be fighting the battle wrongly. In fact, I would like to suggest there are at least two errors of the way that we... We'll go about this work of fighting sin that causes us to actually fall deeper into it. One is this. We try for a while, we feel defeated, and we quit. What's the use, we say to ourselves? You ever had that in the back of your mind? 
This is never going to get any better. I will never have any success over this. There'll never be any victory here. There are whole swaths of sins today that are being domesticated as righteousness in our culture, actually telling us that there'll be no victory over this. You shouldn't even try. So easy for us to fall prey to this, especially because this is hard. And it's difficult. It's going to require effort from us. And so in many cases, we've actually made an alliance with a scenario. And we've laid down our weapons. It's no surprise we're not seeing any success. But I think for many of us, we actually try to fight sin this way. We rely on ourselves and we take up the wrong weapons. We rely on ourselves and we take up our, our, our wrong weapons. We don't actually go to the means of grace. We don't actually go to the body of Christ. We don't go to the heart of the gospel, which begins to change us from the inside out. What, what do we do? We, we in guilt and in shame feel bad, say so, and try better. And that's actually, the devil's not going to actually be that concerned if that's your pattern because there's almost, there's almost no success, spiritually speaking, that's going to come from someone who's relying upon self and the things of the flesh. Notice, the flesh is the problem. If you try to rely on it to kill it, you're actually just feeding the enemy. You'll know this because when you have success in an area, you know, like you, you actually, for like three days, you know, didn't spout off at your spouse, okay? And you, you manage, and, and what begins to happen? You've been working in the flesh, and what, what do you immediately begin to feel? <sighs> really prideful about that. <laughs> and what happens when you're prideful about that? You become vulnerable. <laughs> and you immediately, in the next three hours, spout off at your spouse, right? Fall back down that path. Relying on the flesh when flesh is the problem is never going to make us uh, very far in the killing uh, of sin in the Christian life. And so Jesus is saying here, we've got to take up the gospel. We've actually got to take up a vision of how the Lord is actually at work in our lives and in the lives of his people. I want you to see how he says this. He says, I want you to take to heart what is at stake in your fight against sin. He said, I want you to take to heart, take to heart, we said heart's the issue, take to heart what is actually at stake in your fight against sin. Now, did you notice there's a word that's repeated over and over and over in this text? There's actually a few of them. One of the ones that, is, that the text actually hinges on, a word that the text doesn't make sense without, is the word better. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck. It would be better for you to enter life crippled. It would be better for you to enter life lame. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. Better. Now, each time the word better is used, what is Jesus doing? Well, he's comparing... One value to another value. And he's telling you that one is better than the other. So, for instance, you're, you know, you're at the restaurant. You open up the, the menu, right? And you do, as, as I'm always tempted to do, especially if it's a special occasion and, and maybe I have a, a gift card and I'm sitting there and I open to the steaks on the menu and I look at the steaks and I, and I see, oh, sirloin. Oh, Okay. And then I see filet. Mm. And I think to myself, sirloin, filet is better. 
the, the quality of the meat is, is better. It's going it's to taste better. And, and if Christy's, Christy's with me, especially if we say we were paying for the meal, you know, this, this is really important, she's going to say, filet, sirloin is cheaper. It's better. It's, it's, it's better than the filet because she's, right, she's evaluating, she's evaluating economics. And I'm evaluating my belly um, when we get it right. When Jesus says it is better to lose your hand or your eye or your foot than for your whole body to go into hell, he is not asking you to evaluate whether this is true. He is giving you the value of the kingdom. He's displaying for you the value of the kingdom. Your severity towards cutting out sin is so critical and the power that you release into your heart and soul when you give yourself over to sin is nothing but the very power of the evil one in hell itself. It is clearly better to cut that out from your life and to enter into the kingdom of God without a hand or without a foot or without an eye than it is to give into the power of the evil one that actually has its goal in leading you all the way to hell. You see, that was William's point. I think very often you will find this is actually taking place in your life. When you give into a particular sin area for a period of time in your life, unconfessed, unrepentantly, what begins to happen ultimately with that area of your life? It begins to be under the power of that sin. You will find it increasingly hard to say no to. And you will find that that sin has increasing power over you. And you will find that the consequences of those sin come to roost. You will begin to experience, even in your own earthly existence, something of the hellish quality of that sin. Your life will begin to spin out of control in some area. Jesus is telling you, don't play with this. Put it to death. It has a pathway that's meant for the destruction of your soul. In fact, he gives us the example here and actually uses the word Gehenna. Maybe some of you have heard that word. It's an, it's an Old Testament geographical place that Isaiah uh, pictures. You also see it show up in uh, the historical literature. Gehenna was a valley south of Jerusalem. It was a place where Israel, when they completely lost their way in sin and followed the god Molech, who required... According to tradition and teaching, required child sacrifice. And yes, the people of Israel engaged in child sacrifice under King Ahaz. You talk about losing your way. When Josiah came to reign, that great king who reformed the people of Israel after during that divided kingdom of the Old Testament, he did away, of course, with all of those pagan practices. And you know what he did with Gehenna, the valley where they would go to sacrifice their children? He turned it into a garbage dump. He turned it into a garbage dump. All of the people of Israel's garbage would go there. It was a way of keeping the people of Israel away from the place. He was very wise. Don't go back to the place of your pagan idolatries. I'm going to show you visibly what your pagan idolatries are. They are trash. They are a trash heap. The people of Israel would go there with dead animals and garbage, and, and it, would be, it would be overflowing. So what would they do? They would do as we do. They, they would burn it. 
And there would be so much garbage that it would burn constantly. The smokes would go up from Gehenna and the worms would have plenty of fodder by which to chew upon the refuse. That's the imagery here. Jesus says, what sin is seeking to do is to get you to Gehenna. It's trying to take you into the garbage dump where the fires are constantly burning and where the worm always has plenty to eat. He's letting us know that there's a path that unfolds towards the direction of hell itself. And so notice finally what Jesus says. If the disciples are not to cause another disciple to fall into sin, and in order to do that, disciples must put to death sin in themselves, how must they then live? Right? Isn't that the question? (laughs) Thirdly, disciples be a living sacrifice unto me. See, that's the strange language at the end of the section, verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were salted. They always required salt when the meat was coming to uh, the altar. That's the imagery here of everyone will be salted with fire. We are to be, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, living sacrifices, which is our spiritual service of worship. We are to be those who understand all of our lives and existence to be lived out in commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, what happens is we become salty. When we live our lives as those who are living sacrifices, you know what happens? We have an assaulting effect upon the people around us, upon the places around us, upon the culture that we're living in. What do I mean? Well, salt, of course, in the first century in which Mark is writing, which Jesus is speaking, was used primarily and most, uh, most directly for a preservative. Now, now compare that with the, the vision of Gehenna. What is Gehenna? Corruption. It's a picture of a place that is only in decay. What is a Christian to be? A living sacrifice. He, he or she is on the altar. There's fire. He or she is, is being purified. There's, there's growth and holiness in order to have what effect? A preserving effect on the people around them and the places that they live in. That the well-being of those who are around them would be affected in the way that salt preserves meat in the way that Christians are in the community. This is how I want you to live, disciples. I want you to live those who are my true ambassadors for me and the world. And live according to my grace. So that the sanctifying and saving influence of the gospel becomes increasingly powerful in your life and in your community. Could it be... Some of the corruptions that we experience in our own day and time, in our own cultural moment, would be for the fact that Christians have lost their saltiness. Could could it be that there there is almost an indistinguishableness between the church and the world? Could it be that the corruption that we see is actually aided in ways by Christians' negligence or even abetting 
of the realities of sinfulness and decay in our culture? Could it be? What would it look like if living sacrifice, salted, and a preservative influence begin to be the effect of this little church on the corner of Church and Third in downtown Franklin? How would our community look different? What kind of of blessing would the city of Franklin say about a church that was so committed to the well-being and the spread of the shalom and the peace of the gospel over the entirety of the city because they named the name of Christ and lived as His ambassador? What would that look like? Do you long for that kind of testimony to be the testimony of the church? Rather than it being the, the butt of a joke or an embarrassment publicly because of some scandal? I long for that. I long for that to be the case. It, it starts with our hearts. It starts with our hearts mortifying sin. It starts with our community helping each other grow in grace. It starts one life at a time, one church at a time, and the kingdom of God and its outpost in the church begins to show itself manifest in the world. Because we know where the story ends, you see. We have this morning a Savior who is on the throne. (laughs) We have a book of Revelation that shows us the end of the story. You know what the end of the story is? You're perfect in righteousness. Jesus' enemy is a footstool for His feet. Every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that He is Lord. That's the end of the story. How can we today tomorrow and the rest of our lives, get on with that mission. Anything that's distracting us from that mission in this life is not on mission. It's not on mission with the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes when we are willing to take up the cross and follow our Savior who took it up before us so that the weight of that cross would be bearable that His cross would be to us a light and easy yoke. You see, Jesus is not calling you to save the world. He's already doing that. (laughs) He's calling you to tell the world that it's been done and to walk in the spirit of His completeness. He stands to make intercession for us. He who has ears, let Him hear. Father in heaven, would you help us? Help us to know the realities of these truths, the power and effect that they are intended to have on the lives of this particular church, on the life of your church at large. Father, you know, and only you can make these words plain spiritually to the lives and the hearts of all of us here. Would you now guide and direct your spirit to confirm and to carry out His mission in the life of each and every one of us, that we might be living sacrifices, dying to sin and living unto righteousness, bearing witness for Christ in the world, having the effect, preserving effect, upon the world in which You have placed us. Hear this prayer, Lord Jesus, and answer it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.